For those of you who don't know me, I'm Josh Odie. I am not the normal preaching pastor here. Uh, it's Travis Allen. He, uh, along with many of our elders and um, so, some other men from our church, uh, got to spend this last week uh, at the Shepherds Conference in California, getting to hear world-class preaching from some of the best preachers around uh, for four straight days. Uh, I'd like to uh, draw your attention to the outline in your bulletin and just notice that I did an outline. Like, that's pretty impressive. I don't do those usually. Uh, just, so just look at that. Uh, look at the, the alliteration. Wow. I mean, I, I know that uh, John MacArthur and everything, but alliteration, I couldn't, had to, had to up my game a little bit. So here's what we're doing today. We're going to be talking, uh, we're going to be, we're going to go to one of my favorite uh, stories in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I've never, uh, I, I didn't actually discover it actually until a few years ago. I just kind of read through it and not really thought about it. Um, but uh, I, I want to kind of bring it uh, into our modern thinking by pointing out some stuff uh, that, that you've probably noticed uh, over the last several years. Uh, maybe you saw this or remember this. This is one of the things that kind of tipped off uh, th- this conversation. If you notice, the title of the sermon is The Wrong Side of History. I feel like Christians uh, hear that a lot uh, these days. You're on the wrong side of history. In an article in the Huffington Post a few years ago entitled Evangelicals and the Wrong Side of History, uh, the examples of a Christian denomination holding to the Bible's teaching on uh, women in, in, the pastoral, in the pastoral role, as well as uh, being against gay marriage and abortion, were used in this article to prove just how misguided and behind the times evangelicals are. Uh, the article actually concludes with the line, the zeitgeist of the conservative evangelical movement is anti-democratic to its core, and that spirit must never be allowed to prevail in public policy. Maybe you guys heard a couple of months ago arguing for ex- the expanding of abortion rights. Uh, back in August, Hillary Clinton said that rights have to exist in practice, not just on paper. Laws have to be backed up with resources and political will and deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. And then just recently, in the last couple of weeks, on February 15th, you maybe saw this, the Washington State Supreme Court ruled against Baronella Stutzman, a florist in Washington to, who refused to allow her business to participate in a gay marriage for a gay couple that she had actually served on many occasions and, and helped them many times and, and even considered them as friends, but felt that participating in their wedding was an endorsement of something that she believed to be wrong, and the courts found her to be in the wrong. And in a culture that is constantly telling us to abandon our faith and only trust what their version of science tells us, we are also simultaneously being told by that same culture that we are bigoted if we believe what science tells us about gender and unwilling to allow people's faith to determine what gender is. 
We're told that it doesn't matter when human life technically begins. It's the belief, it's the faith of the mother that determines whether or not there is a baby in the womb or just a clump of cells. And even this last week, my wife and I were very disappointed to see that um, the, the big news that I'm sure you guys were disappointed to see too, that this new remaking of the Beauty and the Beast movie is said to contain a groundbreaking gay moment for Disney movies. And there is this cultural wave, and you can feel it. You can feel it if you're out there at all, if in your jobs, if, you, uh, if you're watching, if you're paying attention, this cultural wave that is sweeping over this nation, the fact that the fact that things like sleeping around and divorce and drunkenness are and pornography are just accepted parts of society now, and there's no even real cultural war over those things anymore, just goes to show that society is heading in a direction that we are in fact powerless to do anything about. Those who love Christ. Those who believe His Word aren't being even invited to debate these things so much as they are being told that this is the way things are going to be and you need to embrace it or at least just be quiet and make peace with it. This is the situation we face today. Um, But I want you to see through this passage that this is not the worst situation the people of God have ever found themselves in by far. And just as we're told in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under, under the sun. The world has always, always been confused about the people of God and about our faith and about who God really is. And while this confusion and these attacks have manifested themselves very differently throughout history, there is a common, a common root mindset, common reasoning of the world among unbelievers, that that's always the foundation for where these attacks begin. And so to illustrate this, we're going to look at this very important Old Testament story. It is, I'm, I'm not kidding you when I say it's an important Old Testament story. It's, it's actually recorded three different places in Scripture, in Isaiah 36 and 37, which is where we'll be today, 2 Kings 18 and 19, and then the, a shorter version of it from 2 Chronicles 32. It is recorded in the book of Isaiah, which we're going to be in, as a historical interlude between the major sections of Isaiah's prophecy in his book. So the first 35 chapters of Isaiah have a lot to say about God's judgment coming on a lot of different nations, including Judah. And the last 27 chapters have to do more with God's rescue and and His mercy and how He's going to accomplish salvation. And right here, in the middle of those, we uh, we see this culmination of God's judgment and God's mercy coming together in an actual historical event. The events of, just quick uh, background, the events of chapter 36 and 37 take place around 701 B.C. This is about 20 years after Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, has already fallen to Assyria. 
So in case you're not familiar with that, uh, after the reign of King Solomon, Israel split into two nations, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom had this succession of bad kings from a bunch of different families, while the southern kingdom still preserved the Davidic line, still preserved the line of David. And there's a mix of bad kings and good kings. And Hezekiah, uh, who this story is about, uh, who's a primary character in the story, we'll say that instead. Uh, he, He was one of the good kings and actually part of the line of Christ, the lineage of Christ. So here we see, uh, and it, what we're going to see here is just a couple of decades after the fall of Israel to Assyria. And a, as those decades have gone on, uh, is, uh, Assyria has only gotten stronger under their new king, Sennacherib. He is moving through some of the cities of Judah uh, very quickly. And Hezekiah has already, uh, we're picking up after Hezekiah has already plundered the riches of the temple in an attempt to buy off Sennacherib and Assyria and keep him from laying siege to Jerusalem. And it was a plan that maybe looked like it might kind of work until we get to this passage here. So with that little brief introduction, I want to read these two chapters together. Uh, it's, it's one of those stories that as you read it, you can't help but smile and, and get excited and maybe even get goosebumps uh, as you read about God and what He does. So, Isaiah, starting in chapter 36. Pay, just please pay attention, follow along. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shibna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before the altar or before this altar? Come now. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? When you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then he like him, Shebna, And Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servant in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, 
Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. And come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one, of you, each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take away to a, land like your, to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant, remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tiraka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the, king of Assyria ha- what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharavim, the king of Hena, the king of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. 
And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for they were no gods but the work of men's hands wood and stone therefore they were destroyed so now O lord our god save us from his hand that all of the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the lord Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to the remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from the days of old that now what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. And because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in, my, in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that, then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat that their fruit, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of, of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Cherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esaradon, his son, reigned in his place. So, with that in mind... Take a look at your outline, 
and, and, and realize and understand that even though there is a much different threat facing the people of Judah in this section of Scripture than we face today, there is similar reasoning behind the mind of each unbeliever in the mind of the unbelieving people. So in your first section in your outline, the reasoning of the world, I have just a ridiculous amount of subpoints. First, I want you to see the world's reasoning, the belief that we, that the people of God are the ones in rebellion. Believe the people of God are the ones in rebellion. The Rabshakeh understood his king, if you look at verse 5, understood his king to be the highest authority. Therefore, the people of Judah are in rebellion. They're the ones in rebellion. The word, uh, the, the word rebellion there it literally means disobedient. The people's obedience to the true God appeared to the unbelieving Assyrian to be rebellion and disobedience against who they believed to be the real power, the real king, the real highest authority. We do not have like that right now. We don't have another claim, a king claiming to be the highest authority who's coming up against us, but we do have a culture that sincerely believes, sincerely believes that whatever makes anyone happy is what reigns supreme. Moral, moral relativism is what we call it. Moral relativism is the only truth that we owe our allegiance to, the truth that there's no real truth, that there's no real right or wrong. That's the only real truth truth, which doesn't make sense, but that is the thinking. You stay out of my business. I'll stay out of yours. The self is the ultimate authority, and we have, according to them, no right to question that. It's not that the world doesn't believe in an authority. It's that they live under the authority of the God of themselves, whether they see it or not. This is their demand that, they, that all people line up under that authority. And when they don't see people doing that, it looks like rebellion to them. That is why they get so angry, even at a kind elderly flower shop owner. Because in their hearts, they don't want to give any ground at all to a divine moral law that gets in the way of people being free to essentially sin in whichever way they choose. They get angry. They get angry, ironically, because those who are actually in rebel, rebellion against God believe that we are the ones in rebellion. We understand, that we understand that they're rebelling against God, and they don't just see us as disagreeing with them when we point out what God's Word says. They see us as rebelling against accepted social truth, rebelling against them, rebelling against the real God of this age. That's what they see. They see us in rebellion. Secondly, Secondly, they see that our trust is in something other than God. They think, they believe that our trust is in... I should say that that's their perception. Our trust is in something other than God. You see that the Rabshakeh believes that the, the confidence that Hezekiah must have is related to a foreign power. 
that it must not be their God. They must be relying on Egypt. That's what he says in verse 6. Are you trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff? And why, now why would he think this? Because here's where we, as we flesh this point out, here's, here's where we might help out the unbelieving world in their confusion. Why would he think this? Because apparently God's people had struggled with the temptation of going to Egypt to seek help from them instead of God. So, in fact, we know that the last straw for the northern kingdom of Israel came when the king of Assyria found out that Hosea, the king of Israel, had sent tribute to Egypt rather than Assyria. And we know actually from earlier on in the book of Isaiah that there were others in Judah who wanted Egypt to save them because God had to, in Isaiah, rebuke them for trusting in Egypt rather than himself. Uh, one of those places is Isaiah 37, but I'm going to take you, in, so you can write that down and look at it, Isaiah 30, verse 7. But I want you to see what God says to Judah in 31, five, or 1 through 5, too. So look at that. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together." For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like the birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will, pro will protect Jerusalem and he will protect and deliver it. He will spare it and rescue it. So you see that if you listen to those words there, that, that there are people in Judah who have put their trust in Egypt to do what God has promised to do. They're looking to an idol-worshiping nation to save them. And sometimes in the same way, we can help confuse the world about our faith and do a disservice to our witness and to God by putting our faith in something or someone else. And the world must always see, always see that our confidence, our faith comes from God and Him alone. There's a time when I first came to Christ when I believed that, that the only people that were really out there teaching real Christianity were, these were my guy, John MacArthur, John Piper, and R.C. Sproul. And in my heart, I really struggled with this. I didn't see how the church in America would possibly survive once those three guys died. I, th I, thought, I, thought, it, I thought that was it, because I didn't hear what I heard from those men from any other sources. I, I, was, no, I was literally nervous about this, um, that that would be the end of America. Um, but, but as I grew in my faith, I have, and, and I, of course, came to the understanding that it's God who 
is the deliverer of his church. It's God who is the head of his church. He uses gifted men, and they're everywhere. Uh, but it is God who our confidence must be in. My hope was, in God, was not in God to, pers- to preserve the truth and his church, but in men in that case. And today, I see a real similarity between what Judah was doing with Egypt and what a lot of Christians seem to be doing with President Trump. I mean, I agree, uh, and you should go back and listen to the sermon that Travis gave immediately following the election. With everything that he said, in a powerful sermon, he he talked about how uh, for most, the most part, our, our life will be much better off Uh, under a Trump presidency than a Clinton one. Our religious freedom will probably be protected a little more. And and in fact, uh, it looks like we might make up some ground in the battle over the sanctity of life. Uh, Those things are good. But just like Judah, just like Judah, who put so much faith in an idol-worshiping country to deliver them, so many Christians seem to have put an unhealthy amount of faith in a famously immoral man who, in fact, mocks God by saying he's a Christian but has nothing to ask God for forgiveness of and has chosen a prosperity gospel-teaching heretic as his primary spiritual advisor. Don't get me wrong. We should absolutely pray for his salvation And God would use him even to advance the cause of life and the cause of the gospel in our country. But we cannot put ourselves in a position where our Christian witness is is forced to defend a man's immorality. There are many Christians and pastors that I've seen around the country, and if you watch on CNN and, and, and other news stations, who by their comments that are recorded have put themselves in a position where their witness for Christ will be severely damaged if an unregenerate man who's been given power fails morally. And unfortunately, when that happens, many of their responses will be to try and find ways to excuse the immorality because they've invested too much in defending him already. We cannot be in a position where our Christian witness depends on someone else and his and him not failing. Our confidence has to be in God and God alone to do what only God has promised that only he can do. Another misconception, another misconception we see in the reasoning of the world is their belief that honestly the Lord is on their side that the Lord is on their side. The Assyrians were confident that they had a better understanding of Judah's God than the people of Judah did. The Rabshaka, remember, said that, that Hezekiah was leading the people away from God. He's leading them away from God. If you turn back to 2 Kings, turn back to 2 Kings 18, 1 through 7. So, so here's, here's what the Rabshaka is seeing and what he's thinking about when he's saying this. 
In the third year of Hoshea, son of, son of Ella, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Neheshutan. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went. Uh, wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of, of Assyria and would not serve him. So, so, so notice from that passage, right, that clearly Hezekiah is doing what the Lord wants. He's doing what the Lord wants. But the Assyrians were confident that, that that's not what was actually happening. The Assyrians had an understanding in their minds of what God or what a God was like, just like all the other nations. Gods needed to be represented in visible images made of them to be worshipped so that if you knocked down the idol of a God, that was, that was an assault against that God. There had to be a visible representation of something to worship. Their minds couldn't comprehend God aside from that. So they couldn't understand that Hezekiah was acting obediently by going in and destroying every object that the people of Judah were taking and breaking the second commandment with. Hezekiah was in fact bringing the people back to worshiping an inv the invisible God in the way that God demanded it. He is not to be up, our God is not to be left up to imagination, to the imagination of idol makers. He is the creator of the idol makers and the things that idols are made with. So not only did they think that Hezekiah was confused about how to worship, but they believed God was on their side. They knew most likely the prophecy that Isaiah had made previously in Isaiah 8, 7, and 8. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. So Isaiah had prophesied that this would happen. And he says a similar thing about Assyria in, in uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. We won't go there either. But this is, this is what the Assyrians are seeing in, in verses 7 through 10. When, when you hear him say that, that, that the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. There the, the Syrians knew about this. So with their limited knowledge of who this God was and what he had said, they were confident that they had a better understanding of the character of God and who God actually was and that God, in fact, was on their side and not Hezekiah's. And we see this also, don't we, so often in our culture. 
So many people who embrace the parts of the Bible that are culturally acceptable, and they only use those types, parts of the Bible with any type of authority. You hear people saying things like, that's not what the Jesus I know is like, or that's not how my God is. The things that I understand the most about God, maybe you've heard this, is that He just wants me to be happy. This is just more worldly reasoning reasoning with a Christian type of spin on it. The appeal to accept all things, the appeal to accept all the things about what God says that will cause me no discomfort and that will encourage me to continue living the way I want. Those are the things I accept and enjoy about God. This mindset is everywhere. And it's even encouraged by the type of theology that's so common in most American churches that teaches that God is still revealing new things. Therefore, none of the Bible is really settled truth because he's still, he's still speaking in authoritative ways into people's life. That, that he's, he's still working. He's still moving. I remember hearing a pastor during the Supreme Court case, the gay marriage Supreme Court case, where hearing him and, and being questioned about whether or not what he thought about gay marriage. And he said, well, I'll wait and see how the court case goes and I'll see what God is doing. And, and that's his response. God never changes. His word is settled truth. If you claim to be on his side while rejecting some of his word as truth, then just like the confident Assyrian commander, you stand completely opposed to him and maybe don't realize it. Next thing we see is in the world's reasoning is confidence based on what they can see. Confidence based on what they see. That's what we see uh, in, in 11 through 13 when um, uh, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah ask the Rabshakeh not to speak to them in Hebrew because they don't want the men of the city to understand the threat. So they, they don't want them. They, they, there's a diplomatic language of Aramaic that, that they, they understand that the other common folk back in Israel or back in Jerusalem don't understand and they, want, they don't want them to understand what he is saying right now because it sounds so devastating and threatening. But the question is, why does the Assyrian commander even know Hebrew? Why do the Assyrians know it? Well, it has something to do with the fact that they had already been involved in conquering a good chunk of the so-called people of God in the northern kingdom 20 years ago and had already assimilated many of them into their culture. It is a reminder of the perceived victory, the, the fact that he knew Hebrew. is a reminder of the perceived, perceived victory over the people of God that they believed that they already had. He reminds them then in confidence of what it is that happens to all the cities that Assyria goes up against and lays siege to. Reminding them in Hebrew that they're doomed to eat their own waste and drink their own urine. Because when, if you don't remember, siege means they come up, they surround the city, and they essentially cut it off from all resources. So people either die by running out because they get so hungry they have to make a break for it, or they do other horrible things in order to try and survive. 
So he reminds them of those victories and what will happen to them. And essentially, he's reminding them of what they've already done and demonstrating his confidence about what is coming. And we see that later on, too, when he reminds them of all the other kings who haven't done anything, who haven't been able to stop us. And we live in a culture, again, that believes that it is winning. And as we feel the pressure from the culture and, and we see these things moving in, in that direction. They do too. This is why whenever they experience any kind of setback, like this last election, they, they, they react so strongly and almost crazily. As I, uh, it is, it's such a surprise to them when they don't expect to lose something like that. They, it just doesn't go along with the way things seem to be moving. And even now, even now, you can see it. You can see the hatred getting stronger as liberal, cultural, shape, culture-shaping institutions like, like universities and Hollywood, they're, they're beginning to ramp up their attacks. Not just, not just normalizing these sinful things, but glorifying that which God considers an abomination. They still have confidence. They know as well as we do that sins like homosexuality and transgenderism have turned from social stigmas to just causes in the span of just the last few decades. Even while I was doing this sermon, my program is so old that it wouldn't change, that it kept trying to change transgender to transcendentalness. Tried to change transgenderism because it doesn't recognize it as a word yet. They're confident that this battle will be won like a siege that slowly weakens the city until it collapses. This is a settled fact to them. In a few more decades, they believe this thing will fa- uh, these things will face no more real opposition. They have complete confidence in how the history books will record this cultural battle. Christianity and its morality is a thing of the past. And because they believe this, it leads into their confidence into this next subpoint: The fact that they believe that, that our only hope, what we have to do, is conform. Christians must conform or surrender or join us. And you see that in in verse 16 and 17 there. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, each of you of his own fig tree, each of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Make peace with me. Make peace with the inevitable. You'll be given comfort. You'll become part of Assyria. Why insist on fighting? Don't you see this is the only real option? Don't we get that same message today? It's one of the things that makes it so hard to take a stand because the world has already seen so many purported Christians and Christian leaders have made peace with the whole situation. You watch one a religious panel on a news station, they've got three pastors arguing against the one pastor who's, who's for the literal interpretation of Scripture. You have those who claim to be Christians who have had long, successful ministries like Tony Campolo calling for the full acceptance, full acceptance of homosexuality in all churches. 
Pastors who refuse to take a stand and say things that sound righteous like, I'm just going to love everybody and leave what's right and wrong up to God. Which completely goes against, by the way, the biblical definition of what love is when you choose to leave people in their sin. Like allowing children to play in the highway because it looks like they're having fun. You can hear it all around in this culture. It's a strong voice. This is happening. Your only hope is to make peace with it. Your only hope. Verses 18 through 20, the next sub-point, next thing, they, they just believe trusting in God doesn't work. It doesn't work. In 18 through 20, the Rabshaka points to the fact that trusting in your God doesn't work. And he has a bunch of examples of all these other cities and nations whose gods are unable to stop the Assyrians. And even so, even so here, uh, the staunchest haters of Christianity have rejected it, many of them, because they look in people's lives that they know who follow God and they believe that it fails. They have a temporal mindset. People who give all their money, they see people who give all their money to a preacher on television because he says God's blessing will come to those who do and then they go bankrupt and they live in poverty. People who have seen loved ones die terrible deaths because and 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 because and they still trusted in God. They still believed in God and they still died the same way. They have this temporal mindset. They think that there is no advantage to being a Christian because all they can see is in terms of this present world. They see it as it's just as bad and in fact maybe even worse because it looks really uncomfortable to be a Christian going against the culture like that. So we see that and then we, we have in Isaiah 36, we have a little bit of a reprieve as Hezekiah's messengers return to him. And Sennacherib's messenger returns to him. And while in the middle of attacking another city, Sennacherib sends a final message to Hezekiah that really gets to the foundational perception that empowers all of these other reasons. In verses 10 and 13 of of chapter 37, 10 through 13, he says, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Notice the subtle change in what is being said. Remember before the Rabshak was saying, don't trust Hezekiah. Don't trust what Hezekiah is telling you. Don't believe him. Don't let him deceive you by lying to you about what your God can do. Sennacherib is telling the faithful Hezekiah, do not believe what God says to you. Your God is no different, he says, than any other God. If you really believe that he has spoken to you and his message is to oppose me, then do do not believe what he says. We also, we live in a culture right now that, that mainly, for the most part, the thing they do is they try and twist the Bible to get it to say what they want it to. But this is the conclusion that they're headed towards. You can't believe this word. You cannot believe it. Make no mistake, what is actually being said in the culture is if you're absolutely sure this is what God is saying, then you have to reject it. We still live right now in a time where the Bible is, for the most part, somewhat revered. Even President Obama would quote from it frequently because he knew it would add credibility to what he was saying. 
There's not a lot of people, though there are a growing number, who will just come right out and say the Bible is just plain wrong. It is growing, but you don't see that in public as often. We're beginning to see the Word of God, beginning to see it being outright rejected because you can only dance around all of those passages for so long. Whether they fully reject the Bible or they're not there yet, the overall message of the culture is clear. You cannot believe everything said in here. We will not allow it. So again, the attack on Christians in our culture, I want you, I'm not, it's not near as severe as this, as what's happening here, but the thinking in the unbelieving mind is the same. That's the reasoning of the world. Now let's look at the next point. By the way, the last two points don't take near as long. Next point in your outline, response of the righteous. Response of the righteous. Upon receiving the initial report, Hezekiah tears his clothes. He tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth, which sounds weird to us, but those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that this is a sign of grief and of mourning. It's a sign of, uh, essentially it's a sign of utter humility and dependence on God. He doesn't say, Hezekiah doesn't say, oh yeah, go get my horse, round up as many men as you can and we'll go show him. We'll go show him. He, he doesn't say that. He understands the situation that he is powerless. He himself, Hezekiah, and his whatever army he has left is powerless against this force. And the only hope he has is the intervention of God. He also doesn't say, maybe we should consider this whole making peace with them option. He doesn't say that. What does he do? What does he do? He seeks the word of God. He sends men to Isaiah. He seeks the word of God, the, what has already been a much maligned word of God. They don't have the, the full Word of God like we have in, in, in Bible form, uh, but they did have prophets. They had the prophet Isaiah, who was still in the process of, clearly, since his book wasn't done yet, clearly in the process of speaking on behalf of God or having God speak through him. God speak his words through him. He goes to him Hezekiah goes to him with a certain understanding that the metaphor in verse 3 applies of chapter 37, if you see that. He said, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. And he compares the situation that they're in to women dying in labor before they can bring their children into the world. Because what's always present... In, in the understanding of the righteous kings in the Davidic line is the promise that God made to David. The promise made to David about a descendant from David's line who will rule on an eternal throne. The Lord has a special plan for David's line that he has promised that he has promised, but unless God intervenes now, that plan will not come to pass, Hezekiah sees. 
It will be like a woman who dies just before the joy of that new life inside her, just before that can be brought forth. And Hezekiah then receives the word from the Lord back uh, through Isaiah, the, the, the words in verses 6 through 7. He says to uh, them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. He hears that and and then, and, that, and, and he believes it, and he believes it, and, and we'll see why we know he believes it. Because then in the next section, uh, verses 8 through 13, that's the message from Sennacherib back to Hezekiah when he tells him not to believe God, and he threatens him further, and he calls God a liar. That's where that message is found. And when Hezekiah receives this message, look at his response in verses 14 through 20. Read it all again. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ears, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah is filled with a confidence that we didn't see at the beginning of chapter 37, right? Apparently, then he has put his trust fully in the word of God that came from the prophet Isaiah. You notice that in his prayer that we just read, that his prayer recognizes the complete truth of the situation. Indeed, Assyria has prevailed over everything it's come up against, but it cannot prevail against the living God, the one true God. Hezekiah prays a prayer fully informed about the truth of who God is as God has revealed himself. And notice Hezekiah's main motivation it's not merely to be saved, but it's so the kingdoms of the earth may know that the Lord alone is God. So I want, I want us to see these two tremendous points of application in response to a world that is hostile to us and to the God we serve. These two major points of application are read the Bible and pray. Read the Bible and pray. <laughs> it's a fourth grade Sunday school answer, but it's true. Like Hezekiah, we humbly seek the Word of God where we know it can be found in this book. And as we read it, we discover the character, the promises of God that will inform our prayers. And as we grow in our understanding of who God is, and we see Him more and more as the sovereign Creator God, who is over all the kingdoms of the earth, 
we will pray with the greatest motivation that can inform our prayers that the glory of God may be displayed over all the earth. And furthermore, we will pray with confidence, confidence that our God hears and responds to our prayers. Look at the unbelievable truth in verse 21. This is amazing. After his prayer, then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. Because you have prayed to me. God does what he is about to do here to Assyria. Something that was ordained before the foundations of the earth because Hezekiah prayed. Assyria was going to fall. Jerusalem and the line of David had to be preserved because of the promise of God to David. And the prayer of Hezekiah was God's means of accomplishing this. Read our Bibles and pray with confidence in this situation, knowing that while we might not see the victory in our lifetime, a certain victory is coming. So that's the proper response to, of God's people to the attacks of the world. Not just read your Bible and pray, but learn, study, meditate on the precious Word of God so that you'll be driven to your knees in confident prayer to the one true God of the universe. And this all makes sense because of the truth of the third point in your outline. There is an unseen reality. Unseen by all of creation, but true nonetheless. And we're given a peek of it right here in God's response to Hezekiah. Verses 22 through 29, God portrays the people of Jerusalem. In verse 22, he portrays them as a helpless virgin, yet confident because of the truth of who Assyria has mocked. He brings up the things that have caused Assyria to gain so much confidence. That's what he does in verses 24 and 25. Right? He brings up, you've done all of this, you say you've done this. You say you've done that. And then he drops this bombshell in verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from the days of old what now I bring to pass all the stuff that you're doing. You have always, he's saying, God is saying to Assyria, you have always and only ever done what I determined for you to do. You have been nothing but my puppet, accomplishing only what I determined that you would do and not one other thing. And in verse 28 and 29, after all of this bragging about horses that this Syria has been doing, God says that he's going to treat them like a horse and put his bit in their mouth and turn them back on the way they came. He's like saying, okay, great and powerful nation of Assyria, of Assyria I'm done with you now. And then verses 33 through 38 show us that what, happen, what happens is just what God said would happen. Snacherib goes back to his own land and is killed there. After God, the angel of the Lord, strikes down 185,000 men in 
and night. This is our great encouragement. This is our great encouragement. That behind, behind it all, behind all, the knowledge that this wicked culture and all the evil that we see in this world, all of it will only, only advance to the place that God has appointed it to go and no further. It will advance exactly as, as far as God wills it to, and that will be the place that will bring him the most glory. And we don't see it and we don't know where that's going to be yet, but we know that that is true. And those of us who, and, and the confidence we should have in this is that those of us who, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah from the line of David through Hezekiah, know this to be true because we have experienced a far greater deliverance than what we read about today. A certain punishment for our sin due to us through the wrath of God miraculously, miraculously delivered from it through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And we can rest assured that all the evil and wickedness and rebellion against God that seem to be running rampant through this world will only serve to bring the maximum amount of glory to our God when Christ returns and vanquishes all evil from existence. On that day, all of this evil, all of this stuff that we're experiencing now, the wickedness of this culture, the pressures of this world, all of it will only help to add passion and joy to our cry of how great thou art. God, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for putting this story in your word for us to see, God, that we can go to it and gain confidence from it as we continue on, as we go about our day-to-day -day lives in a world, in a culture that would have us to believe that we're on the wrong side of history. I thank you for the truth the truth of, of what ha happens in Revelation 19 that shows that we are on the right side of history. There is coming a day when you will return. When you will return and all the world will see what Sennacherib sees here. That everything that's been done, all the so-called wicked uh, battles that, the, that this culture have, has seemingly won <coughs> only serve to bring you more glory. In Jesus' name.